Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be in 1 Peter this morning. Happy Thanksgiving to you, by the way. And just a heads up about where we're going uh, over the next number of weeks. So starting next week, the first Sunday in December, and then for a full five weeks, we'll be in a series called Out of Our Lonely Exile, a, a title that takes its cue from that Christmas carol. And this is going to be a backing up and looking at the story of the whole Bible. We've been in exile ever since we were sent out of the garden. And there's one day when we will make our arrival safely into the presence of God, into a garden that'll fill the whole earth, be filled with his presence and his glory. And there won't be any sin there. We're going to tell the story of the Bible and, and five stops. And maybe we'll make some stops along passages that you wouldn't typically think of as marking the Bible's major divisions. It'd be a great, great series to show up for if uh, you were new to the Bible and if you visited us this morning and are thinking of coming back, please come back and join us through the holiday season and stay, please. That's a little bit of a heads up as to where we're going. Well, now back to 1 Peter. We'll, be in, we'll read here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 in a moment. Peter has been cleared to us concerning the times. He's spoken to us about our former ways, our feudal ways inherited by our forefathers that belong to this old and dying age. He's spoken of futility and of ignorance of God. He's spoken to us about our trials specifically that we are at times insulted and maligned and reviled. And that's no reason for reviling back. No, we actually are optimistic about what God is doing to save and to use our obedience to him and our faithfulness and even righteousness to commend the gospel, even if some recoil at it. He's spoken to us about the times we're in and the trials we face in these times. Well, what does a church like ours need in times like these? We would be right to say that we need hope, big hope, gospel hope rooted in the resurrection. And that would be right. That's where Peter began. We would be right to say we need a living word for that gospel hope tied to our living Lord is born of a living word. We would be right to say that we need each other. We need the local church. After all, this letter is written to churches. But there's something else that's on Peter's mind to which he turns this morning. Let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
I don't know how to say his last name, but Zach Eswine, well, you wouldn't know either, so that's just how we're going to say his name as a church, speaks to pastors and to churches with such wisdom. And I haven't forgotten this quote. He says, as you enter ministry, you will be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. But take note, a crossroads waits for you. And Jesus is that crossroads. Because almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. And the pastoral vocation, because it focuses on helping people cultivate what truly matters, is therefore no exception. Large things, famous and fast. Oh, the pressure as a pastor in our day. Zach Eswine writes simply and incisively to the need of the moment for pastors, at least in our time and place. Peter writes for pastors and churches in his time and place, and it speaks to us just the same. This matter that Zach addresses in this quote that I've just read about the pull to large things comes from that emphasis on leaders and even pastors as a kind of CEO visionary. Paint for us a big, beautiful picture and take us there. Famous things, maybe the desire in all of us for celebrity, especially charismatic leaders and fast and efficient things, our love of efficiency as the whole management, managerial field developed just short of 100 years ago. And we read about and write about constantly. And all of that has a way of infecting how we think about what a pastor, what a preacher, what an elder is. And we want to get our understanding of these things from the Bible. Understanding them the wrong way and falling to the subtle temptation to think the wrong way about this role and the role of your elders on the part of your elders and your part can lead to big public failures without guardrails. There are podcasts about churches that have risen and fallen with with the man as he has risen too high and therefore fallen. Big public failures, but often enough and way more often for it's the big public failures that hit the radar the media radar, the social media radar. But what the Lord sees is often that inward, quiet sense of failure that a pastor has or that you have in your church or towards your pastor when we conceive of the leadership thing the wrong way in the local church. And among other things, he's addressing elders here who may be tempted to think that their appointment to the office of elder is is all about them and forget who it is in the first place about and for. Or maybe a pastor would be tempted to think, especially in the first century, 
Christianity and church being so new that difficulties of various kinds meant that they weren't doing it right. I mean, hardship in a church can make even in our own day a pastor wonder if the sheep are thinking he's doing it wrong. And no doubt that was a problem in the first century. And so he's giving them backbone and he's strengthening them. And among members, there could be a temptation to think that those who hold the office of pastor are therefore just innocent. They don't, they don't sin anymore. And they're not vulnerable to sinning. And they're not vulnerable to falling out of qualification even. And maybe an alternative temptation would be to see pastors as incidental to what God is doing. Or at worst, in the way of what you want to do in your church. Oh, all of this is all of this is just a setup for this important passage which comes toward the end of Peter's, Peter's letter. I think it's at the end for a, for a reason which I'll share with you, with you later. Now, what is Peter saying by putting this here? And very basically, I think he's saying that godly shepherds are God's plan to preserve his church in ungodly times. We need the word of God and we need big hope and we need one another. And according to this passage, we also need godly shepherds and pastors. As you visit a church, if you were to move across the country, you might have a number of things in mind that would be very good. Um, Is the church culture healthy? Are they inviting it? Do they believe the right things? Are they confessing Jesus as Lord? Not just are they friendly, is their worship Christ-centered? Is the word faithfully preached, all of these things? Well, often, if a church passes the sniff test and you stay and it's healthy, there's something else going on behind the scenes that you can give thanks to God for. And it's God's grace on that church to bless faithful leadership. And a church is faithful submission to that leadership. Now, as we'll see, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And that has something to do with the relationship of elders and and the congregation and shepherds and sheep and how we interact together and how each of us go about our respective roles together in God's plan. But at a very basic level, whatever else we do in mechanizing leadership at our church and the kinds of meetings we hold and how we go about them, job number one in setting a church on the right track and getting a church in the right place is to get the church under the word of God and to hear this passage preached. And as it is, it falls on Thanksgiving weekend. Not a typical Thanksgiving passage, but actually I kind of like it showing up on a Thanksgiving weekend because there's reason to give thanks to God for elders. So let's start our way into this passage, a passage that elders need this morning as we listen in a passage that all of us need. This morning, we're going to consider what we need from our elders, what our elders need from us, and what all of us need from God. First, what we need from our shepherds. Verses one through four. Notice he doesn't tell us why we need shepherds. Actually, even if elders were not appointed in this church, there would still be shepherds, leaders. 
Anywhere you've got people, you've got leaders, more prominent voices, those that are deferred to in our broader culture, of course, in our, the world in which we find ourselves. We've got experts. Some are better and worse. We've got blue checks, your blue check marks, your celebrities. You've got your talk show hosts. Between those, there are those with personality, those with credentials, those with, those with status. And some have arrived at those in a whole variety of ways. But leadership is assumed there will always be leaders. He's not arguing for the importance of having them. He's getting right into the matter of how to go about them, how to see the role of elder. We'll see a few things here. We'll see that we need shepherds to have the right mindset and the right metaphor and the right motives for their work. Let's talk about the right mindset. So he begins here, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. You know, Peter, the way he left off last week's passage, it's almost like he could have just ended the book. This beautiful, this beautiful command that let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And we've sung this morning of the great faithfulness of our God, our God who is faithful in love. And we've pondered and sung to him about his great faithfulness and we've praised him for it. And his faithfulness is expressed to us most specifically and beautifully in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And right here at the beginning of chapter 5, as he turns to talk to elders and everyone's listening in, there's this elevated sense of his writing. It doesn't exactly take me to the locker room, but there is a sense in which it's a coach with his team showing them the glory of the moment that they are before in the face of great difficulty and a great challenge. He's grabbing the elders by the shoulders. He's looking them in the eye. He's saying, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, you shepherd the flock of God. And this here isn't meant to intimidate. It's meant to elevate. It's meant to elevate all of our sense of the moment that we're in and what we're up against and who is ultimately for us in it all. And this mindset, which tends to this matter of Jesus's person and work, has been his central focus throughout the book. And that we get our thinking right on the times in which we live And on who Christ is has been his matter of attention. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 13. Specifically thinking about having your mindset right. Therefore, he says, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
All of us are to have this mindset that while we endure suffering, we are fixing our hope fully on the revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. I'll turn to chapter 4 now. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with what? With the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. In times in which we live, our passing and fading. These are the times of ignorance and it matters where your mind is, what's going on in your head. It matters what you're thinking. It matters your mindset. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, Jesus is raised from the dead and this age is fading and passing and dying and is about to go away because a new age has dawned The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, what? Be sober, self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This matter of a proper mindset has been his fixed attention for you and for me as we've been reading this whole letter. And remember that Peter isn't writing this letter to the elders. Isn't that interesting? We remind ourselves of that sometimes here as a church because we need to. These letters are written to you and to me. And elders get some attention along the way. And there are some letters written to elders. But this letter was written to Christians, everyday Christians like you, and congregations, everyday congregations like like ours. But this mindset that we're all to have, oh, elders must have it. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, It's tempting as an elder for the first thing to be on our minds to be ourselves. What we may stand to gain or stand to lose from the work of eldering. And some of you who are elders in our church uh, get this, or some of you who have been elders would understand this. There's always a temptation to put yourself at the middle, as there is for every sinner. Put themselves in the middle of everything. A little bit of a better Temptation would be to put you at the middle of everything. For you to be our first thought, how you're doing, where you're at. Oh, how our elders, elders talk about being up at night thinking about you and then going to prayer for you. And we encourage each other in that. Getting to where you are. Oh, how we love you and how we care for you and how important you are to us because you are so precious to God. But this is not the first thing that Peter wants on the elders' minds. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, you elders set your mind to the sufferings of Jesus. Calibrate your expectations for how this is all going to go by how it went for Jesus. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. You elders set your attention on the glory of the risen Lord Jesus. So that our expectations are not merely calibrated by a cross, but by the glory to which it leads, suffering on the way to glory. This has been Peter's repeated theme, suffering to glory, suffering to glory. So it was for Jesus, so it is for you, Christian, so it is for 
your elders. In fact, as I'll show you, I think that what Peter is suggesting here is that elders are tip of the spear in this matter. Suffering to glory. This matter of suffering to glory, Christ's suffering and Christ's glory puts us in our place and it protects us from a couple things. It protects a pastor from from burnout where he loses heart, he loses his fire, his, his warmth for the Lord because he is given too completely to you and not in the first place to Jesus. His expectations are not calibrated by this incredible suffering of Christ and incredible glory to come, but the horizon becomes increasingly, increasingly the horizon of this world. And when we get lost in your problems, oh, let me tell you, we get lost. What you need from us is to be about Jesus first. So I pray we are. This matter of Jesus' suffering and his glory as first on our minds, as dominating in our imaginations, protects us from burnout. And it protects us from flaming out, from losing, not heart, but losing the battle against temptation. And not just losing our fire and warmth and love for the Lord, but going down in flames on account of it. There is no proper eldering apart from a firm and fixed and resolute focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I need. And that's what you need from me and from your elders. Peter grabs the shoulders of your elders in this passage. And he says, you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. That is where your attention must be. I understand the hardship you're going through. I understand how much you know about all the things your people are going through. I know how much they don't all know what you know that they're going through. But Jesus does, and he is the one that they need, and he cares for them more than you can ever care for them, and his grace is sufficient, and as it is, anything you have to offer, I empower in the first place. So you fix your eyes, elders, you fix your eyes, fix your eyes on Christ. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Which leads us now from a mindset to a proper metaphor. Now, I've already presented some of the conceptions that we may have about pastoring that we just get from living in the world. There's different kinds of leaders, and we have to be self aware about the kinds of ideas we're bringing into the room and into the church. And elders always have to be about this. Often, our, our elders will say, Well, At work, we think like that, but here we need to think like this. And it's not that there's no place for numbers or keeping things in order here. Sometimes teams will get this way wrong. In business, there's organization. In church, it's chaotic. I mean, no one would say that, but sometimes we allow a little too much. In business, we move fast. Here, we're patient forever to everyone's detriment. That's not the case either. There's wisdom in how this translates over. The point is just simply that we want to get our images and our ideas about what leaders are in the church from the Bible itself and not merely import ideas about what leaders are and then attach things or make some simple 
modifications. I've talked about the CEO leader, the visionary leader, the, the manager leader, and there are ways in which these skills show up everywhere where leadership happens, where there are people. In this case, we have a couple terms for our leaders here in the Bible. I've been using them interchangeably all morning, which is kind of how it works at our church. So here's where we get that. Look, he says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the elders among you. That is a word that refers to one's maturity. Typically, it could be used of somebody who is simply older. They're an elder in life. In this case, it would be an elder in the faith, someone mature in the faith. In this case, it's a, it's a, it's a technical term for the office of elder. But look at how he describes the work of an elder, shepherd the flock of God in the second half of verse 1. So what does an elder do? An elder shepherds the flock of God, pastors. That's our metaphor. And what does that involve? Well, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. Overseer is another word used for elder. Now, churches understand these things differently. And in one denomination or another, you might have this word for overseer is used for a bishop over pastors in a whole region. Um, Episcopos, the word for elder. Uh, in Presbyterian churches, they'll use that. There are ways that each of these terms sometimes are used differently for different types of roles in different places. And we don't mean to fuss at other churches for how they get these things. But our understanding is these are synonymous. Reading Peter on the page here, elders pastor and give oversight. Elders shepherd and bishop give oversight. That makes sense? Elders are pastors, are overseers. Leader is a word we use in our day, but much better to speak in terms of maybe spiritual leader or, or shepherd or elder or pastor. So you're going to hear all of these things at Heritage, and you'll hear them mixed around a bit in this sermon, but it's good for you to know where that comes from. But the controlling metaphor here, while he calls them elders, there's a controlling metaphor, and that is that of shepherd. That's the primary, that's the imperative here. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, and then how you go about that. The manner or the motive, which we'll get to. Shepherding the flock of God. On the one hand, he's probably using this image because it's immediately useful. If you know what sheep are and a shepherd is, you've got a lot. You've got a lot going for you already in understanding the kind of leader he's talking about. It's one who nurtures, one who provides guidance, one who leads to green pasture and feeds. That's what's happening right now. We're feeding on the word together. I'm pastoring. We're all eating and feeding. One who guards and takes a hit, even lays down his life for the good of his, for the good of his sheep. This imagery is so useful already. And I've only seen a few sheep in my whole life. You probably haven't seen very many sheep in your life. But because you've been in church, you've heard this before. And so you know about sheep and shepherds. 
So it's just useful. Peter uses it for that reason, but there is more going on here. It's also, if you know Peter, if you know Peter and you come to this term, you come to this moment where he says to elders to shepherd the flock of God, it's moving. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. The Apostle Peter has has a history that is quite known to all. Chapter 21, verse 15. When Peter had finished up some breakfast with Jesus, they had a chat. Now you remember Peter. Peter was not so bold. Peter was a coward and he denied Jesus three times. Peter did not get it when Jesus said he had to suffer. And Peter didn't get it when he said, Peter, you'll have to carry your cross. He didn't get it all the way to Jesus going on the cross. He didn't connect those things. And he was ashamed of his Lord as he's commanding us not to be ashamed of the Lord. And he denied Jesus once and denied Jesus a second time and denied Jesus a third time. And Jesus so sweetly and tenderly and lovingly finishes Peter's story this way. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, you can imagine his heart racing. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he's thinking, that's two. And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. You know why he was grieved. Because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And it's not just that he's saying it a third time. It's that Peter had been around this kind of a question in his own heart three times and had answered it the other way. But here he has another chance. He was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but you, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you wherever you do not want to go, which probably didn't make a lot of sense to him at the moment. But John tells us what Jesus was saying. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, as he had said before, follow me. And so Peter writes to the churches of Asia Minor with a full sense of what it costs to be a disciple. For he had seen Jesus on the cross and now in speaking to Jesus having raised from the dead, he had been told about how he might die himself. And he had been given a reconciled relationship with Jesus and Jesus was to him so very precious. But there's even another reason besides its utility and besides this personal background of Peter's. Peter had, so we can imagine, 
been meditating on the promises of God in the Old Testament concerning the day when the Messiah would come and what he would do for his people in that time. You don't need to turn there with me. I'll read a few verses from the book of Ezekiel now. We have reason to think Ezekiel might have even been on his mind at this time. In Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel is preaching to Israel under the Old Covenant in such a hopeless situation. The Old Covenant full of commands, good commands, but with no heart to obey. And her leaders devoured her. Here's how Ezekiel speaks of the elders. And he said to me, go in and seal the vile abominations that they are committing there in the temple as Ezekiel is given a vision. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? Each of them in his room with pictures. The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And also to me, you will see greater abominations that they commit. And this idolatry and this abandonment of God, this is humanity apart from God's grace with the word of God, but without the new birth. Even her spiritual leaders had denied God and turned away from him and were leading the people astray. And he's, Ezekiel is given this vision of just how vile and how off things had become. And in Ezekiel chapter 34, there is a beautiful promise of how the Lord will get this done, how the Lord will fix everything. Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord God in verse 10 of Ezekiel 34. Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. And I will feed them with good pasture on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And I will bring them back the strayed and I will strengthen the weak and I will feed them. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be the prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Here to God's people, betrayed by their own shepherds, who were devouring the sheep and eating the sheep and taking from the sheep and neglecting the sheep and running from the sheep. They were like hired hands who didn't care for the sheep. The Lord says, I will come down myself and I will gather every single one to myself. And then he says, I will do it through a king, a son of David who will come, who is none other than the Lord Jesus. Oh yes, it is true. The answer, the answer to this world's problems as it concerns leaders And there are so many leaders that try. There are better and worse leaders. And there are many profound failures of leaders of every kind. 
And what we really need, what we really need, what every human, what all of our neighbors need, what the nations need is the Lord to be their shepherd. And to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, who does not take, who does not steal, who does not prey upon, who does not eat the sheep, but lays down his life for the sheep. And this is what the Lord has promised to do. And it's interesting, in Ezekiel chapter 9, there's this line as God comes to judge he says, I will begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Here, Ezekiel's vision, and there are other prophets who speak about this, that there's a time of tribulation coming and God will begin judgment with his own house. The house of God will begin judgment. Do you remember what, do you remember what Peter just said at the end of the last passage that we read? For it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And last week we said this judgment that begins at God's house isn't a punishment. Punishment has fallen on the Lord Jesus, but it is a judgment of division, of sorting, of clarifying who is who. And as Peter has preached to us that that our tribulations and trials are like fire that purifies us like gold so that we are more plainly genuine and even more ready for Jesus' return. So that's happening in the church too. And as the temperature heats up and as the pressure is on and the costs go up for identifying with Jesus, some aren't showing up anymore. And we grieve for that. But that's clarifying and it's part of what God is doing. And it's almost like Peter was reflecting on this theme of things starting in the household of God and then with the elders of the household of God that leads him now to talk to elders. And I think the takeaway here is that elders are the tip of the spear in this matter. It's no surprise that in other countries and other times in our own, the pastor is taken first, arrested first, publicly criticized first, stricken. Because if they can harm me, they can strike fear into you. This passage is interesting where it falls here at the end of the book. He addresses elders and then the younger and then everyone. He says, be subject to your elders. This kind of sounds like it belongs earlier in the book. Do you remember? He had a whole section where he addressed slaves and masters and husbands and wives. And I forget what else was there. There was a third thing. Oh yeah, citizens and, uh, and our governing authorities. That was the first thing. You remember? Because I've been feeding you. He's already addressed these three couplets of relationships. And there was the theme of subjection and subjection and subjection. And then he moves on. And it's almost like, it's almost like he remembered. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Elders in the congregation or shepherds in the sheep. Let's talk to you guys for now. Only got so much paper. It's going to add this here at the end. Make sure it sound like, sounds like it works in. I'm not sure that's the case. I think it goes here at the end because it belongs at the end as a kind of climax to things. Here in his closing remarks, after he's spoken about the stakes involved and the pressure on the church and, and framed up our own age as a kind of a judgment where, where God is judging between sheep and goats. And at the head of that is this matter of leadership. Elders will feel the heat the most. I think that's true. That's true in my own experience. Not so much personally, but working with elders. I'll be circumspect. I mean, you don't know when this is happening or who we're talking about. This will be true of 
of men in other churches I've been a part of, but I have seen men whose reputations in the community were complicated at best and soiled at worst because of the sins of other people and lies and slander. And and, and being an elder means dealing very carefully with, in a surgical way, in obedience to Jesus' commands with people in great profound sin, profound sin. And there's all kinds of things that get said about you personally and about your church. Anyone who's been in church long enough or in church leadership understands that this is par for the course. It's no excuse for not caring, not not whatsoever. But it is not surprising that as you lay situation and situation and situation next to one another, you have a, a pattern of sometimes the Lord blessing your prayers and your patience and your, your long-suffering and your, the counsel you've sought with, with the fruit of repentance and reconciliation. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And when that doesn't happen, sometimes that comes at cost. And elders in our own church who are in the community in various jobs, as the heat continues to get turned up, will be identified with a church who is publicly confessing the Lord Jesus Christ, a man crucified and raised from the dead some 2,000 years ago, who calls us to live in certain ways and calls us to believe certain things. So pray for your elders. Pray for your elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Tip of the spear. That's why I think this falls where it does. Peter is using this metaphor not only because it's it's useful, not only because it's so personal, but because it's profoundly and deeply biblical. And he's been meditating on the scriptures and he sees the spiritual leaders of the local church in a role of shepherding sheep. And finally, he turns to motives here. They're motives. When you want to be clear about something, you can say what you don't mean and what you do mean. And then you can do that a second time. And you can do that a third time. He does that three times. And he doesn't address here what exactly they're supposed to do. He addresses our motives, which tells you how important the invisible, spiritual, personal motives are of your elders. And all of us need to know that as we identify and appoint elders together as a church. He says, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Because God doesn't lead us under compulsion. And so we need as a church elders who are not dragged into it, but drawn into it. Drawn into it because of the beauty and the importance of it. Elders for whom pastoring is not a mere duty. It doesn't mean it's not difficult. It doesn't mean it's not a duty. But for whom it's not a mere duty, but ultimately at the end of the day, because you are precious for whom it is a delight. Elders for whom eldering is not a have to, but a get to. That's the first matter of motive. The second matter of motive, not not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And so we don't want elders at heritage who are in the matter of eldering for what they can get out of you but for what they can give to you because God has gifted them so and matured them so and freed them so. 
We have elders in our church that are paid and some who are not paid. Most who are not paid. They're paid in other ways by the Lord. And this reward we'll see in a moment. For the ones who are paid, that's perfectly appropriate. And there are other verses that address the worker being worth his wages, um, those who give themselves to teaching and preaching worth double honor. That's a matter of biblical instruction for different passages. It's not wrong to pay pastors. It's not wrong to be generous. A church should be generous. A pastor should not be greedy. And that's a very important reciprocal relationship that has to be maintained. The man must not be in the work for what he can get out of the flock. Now, lots of the famous things that happen, the, the, the flameouts or the, what I call the, no, the burnouts, the flameouts, the things that hit the news, things we get podcasts are about, are where this goes way off the rails. Shameful gain. Not just gain, but shameful gain. And there are other passages throughout the pastoral epistles that warn against this. It's a temptation for any human being to lust after money. And it can be a temptation for elders and pastors who are paid as well. And it's very important to maintain this matter of motive. So look out for this as we identify and appoint pastors together. A third one, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Which is to say, we do not lead from a motive that seeks the subservience that you can show us, but the example that we can show you. It's interesting to think about why these go together. Why is domineering set in contrast with being examples? Well, one is profoundly selfish. You are there for us You are there to obey us. You are there to prop us up, to enhance our power, our greatness. You are there to be controlled by us. There's a whole orientation, almost adversarial relationship here, domineering over those in your charge. May it never be on my part or your elder's part. Now, what that doesn't mean Uh, And you'll hear this sometimes. So this verse will be taken. um, The elders don't listen or so-and-so is domineering. And it's just simply you don't agree. So that's different. Um, Every elder, including me, is open, should be open to criticism, should be willing to listen long, should be willing to consider, but ultimately must lead according to our convictions, according to the word of God. So this is not a free pass to hold this over an elder or over an elder team simply because you're not in the mood for something that's going on. But nevertheless, this matter of domineering is a real temptation. To talk a lot, to talk fast, to talk first so others don't talk and agree more quickly and move on. Even among our own elder team, I have a lot of airtime up here. My job is to talk. So I have to sit in our meetings and tell myself, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk, don't talk. Lest I just say everything I'm thinking. And those brothers who are involved in this work vocationally have to be careful about that because we care about everything that goes on here. We're doing it full time. There can be a temptation to speak with strength about everything that goes on. 
Elders that have been elders for more time or have been in the church for a longer time, have a longer memory, and they know the history about this and the reason for that. And it can be tempting to jump in and speak and squash or put that thought out. And and rather than to reason and to listen and to persuade and to, to work together as a team. So at every level, this matter of domineering is a temptation. I don't think we have a problem of this. But it doesn't mean it's not a temptation for me. It doesn't mean it's not a temptation for any of your elders just as it's a temptation for you in any role of leadership that you, you occupy. And so it's important for us as a church to, mat, to mind this matter of the motive of our elders. Now, as an elder team, there's some ways that we structure our leadership so that we're not domineering. Now, when we come to a decision together, we reason slowly together so that we agree together in the Lord and we seek to lead you through preaching and sometimes several sermons and an abundance of writing, sometimes too much an abundance of writing, and then elder Q&As and family meetings, and please show up to family meetings. And all of this, all of this is so that we might be knit together in love, knit together in love, and so that you might be able lovingly, willingly, and with full conviction and a happy heart to take our lead. Even a few years ago when we, when we added the regular family meeting and the regular meals and and then a meeting you might not know about that puts elders, deacons, and shepherding group leaders all in a room together every month for an hour and a half to pray and to, to study and to eat together. All of those things are meant to help us in a pretty large church move forward together. So my calendar has too many meetings in it sometimes. But all of those meetings, all of those meetings for any of you in leadership, myself included, are a part of seeing that we are all lovingly led by the word and that your elders are not domineering over you. You are in our charge. You see this? Don't domineer over those in your charge. You are in the spiritual charge of your elders, but we're not to domineer over you. And you can tell us when you think that that is, that is happening. I would encourage you to do that. So those are some words on the matter of motive, but he's not done. It's really important that elders are driven by a reward for their work. Look at verse four with me. We're not to be driven by compulsion or for shavel gain or or the accumulation of control and power and prestige, but we are driven by something of a reward here. No little thing. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Isaiah speaks to us about that day when the Lord will come to his people. And he says, in that day, the Lord will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to his people. I don't think this refers to Uh, accessories that elders will wear around the new creation that you won't wear. There is a special honor and glory and pleasure the Lord takes in all of our special obedience, including the sacrifices involved in eldership for those who have been elders in the past and those of you who are now. But this matter right here is to suggest that you elders, your walk of obedience to the Lord in this age is not one merely of a sheep, but one of a shepherd. And when you arrive, 
and see the face of Jesus. So you, as all of us, will receive the unfading crown of glory and yours will take into account the way that your tribulations have purified your faith for the day when you would see Jesus' face and glory in it. In that day, what is the crown? The Lord will be the crown of glory and a diadem of beauty for his people. However ugly it is down here, however beautiful it is down here, but can't touch how beautiful it will be when the Lord himself is with his people. He is a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to us. I'll praise God for that. Oh, so much to say, so much more to say, but all Peter gave us was four verses, so we're moving on because there's more people to talk to, even in brief. I exhort the elders among you, verse one, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, who's that? And what is the age cutoff for younger? Well, is he talking now about young people and old people? I don't think so. The way he's done this so far in his book is he talks to one party and then he talks to the other party. I think he's doing that again here. Is he saying that there's young people and then there's elders, so everyone who's older is an elder, or that elders who hold the office are only older people? I don't think he's saying that. We don't have that kind of age specificity in any other place. I think rather it's fair to say that typically elders were older. And maybe even in these churches, they were almost always older. Maybe there were a number of young people. Whatever the case, the younger you are, the harder it is to do this, isn't it? You who are younger, be subject to your elders. For our purposes, we're just talking to everybody else because I think that's what he's, I think that's what he's doing. And his command is simple. Be subject to your elders. That's important to remember. Your responsibilities and ours, we're all responsible for guarding the gospel. Elders preach another gospel, cry anathema. Correct, rebuke, all of that. Elders sin against the Lord, correct, confront, bring a charge against elders. Elders call you to sin in some fashion, an elder calls you to sin in some fashion, some spiritual leader in our church of any kind uses that position in order to ask you to do something that is against the Lord. If it is against the Lord, it is not from him. There is more to say there. We guard the gospel, we guard the the door into our church with membership. When it comes to the how-to of church life, the incidental things really in the big picture, those are the things that are naturally delegated to, to elders that we include you in in a variety of ways. So think about this. Be subject to your elders. In what respect? With what? Maybe two things. The really big things. The word of God. Because our job Our authority is derived from the word of God, from the apostolic teaching, which Peter is giving. Insofar as we are preaching and teaching and instructing you in the word of God, that is God putting a human on the ground with a Bible in their hand to help you hear his own voice. So to the extent that you're hearing God's word from your elders, subject yourself to your elders. 
And then in incidental things, things like the color of carpet, uh, what they, you know, building projects tend to blow up a pastor's ministry. That has never happened here, thank God. But that's because unhealthy churches tie themselves up with petty things. So don't tie yourself up with petty things. It doesn't mean you have to know everything that's going on when there's decisions. That would be impossible and inappropriate in many cases. It doesn't mean you even have to agree with everything the elders might do. We don't always agree with each other. So much of what we do is in in that realm of prudence and wisdom and the application of the word of God. And and there can be different ways to go about ministry on a street corner like like ours. So it doesn't mean you need to know everything or, or agree with everything. So that's a bit of a framework for thinking about what it means to subject yourself to elders. Read all of Peter, read your Bible, listen to the preaching of the word, and that should be intuitive as to when it applies and when you've got a problem. Well, what do we need from God? We land here. What do we need from God? Friends, we need grace from God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Oh, that's what we need. We not only get grace for obeying his word through the normal obedience of things, but we get his special grace that he sets on a church. Don't we want God to bless our church, to show grace to us? Isn't Peter such a good example here of humility, which is the means to grace? How do we lay hold of this grace of God? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. What has Peter done in verse 1? I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder. Peter was an apostle. Apostles were kind of a big deal. You had to be a witness of Christ personally. You had to be personally appointed by Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul qualified for both of those things, but it had to be proven and dealt with and figured out and confirmed because it was unconventional the way Paul became an apostle. Point is, is you couldn't just claim to be an apostle. Peter was an apostle. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ through and through and through from beginning to end. He was not there at the cross, of course, but he witnessed his sufferings otherwise. But he doesn't claim apostleship In this moment when he talks to elders, but he says, I was a fellow elder, am a fellow elder with you. And even as he distinguishes himself as an apostle by saying he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ, he does so in a way that puts our attention on Christ. Peter is an example of a proud man brought low by Jesus. And now he leads as one who is told by Jesus, feed my sheep. So he tells the elders of this church, you feed my sheep. The Lord Jesus, through the apostle Peter, feed my sheep. Elders, you can't do this work that Peter is calling you to apart from a vision that is filled with the Lord Jesus and his suffering and his glory. Elders, you cannot go about this work of tending the sheep and doing any good by them apart from tending to your own motives in doing so. Elders, remember that all of our leadership in its structure and its substance is circumscribed by the word of God. This is not our flock, but the flock of God. 
We are not the chief shepherds, but Jesus is the chief shepherd and we serve him. And elders, accept that you will be the tip of the spear for hardship in this age. Why else does Peter call attention to the sufferings of Christ right here? It is not a sign that we're doing things wrong. It is a part of how things go. And elders never forget how things end. And members, you must care deeply about this matter of cultivating and identifying and appointing your elders. When we say there's a family meeting and we'll be talking to you about an elder candidate, you show up to that. You pay attention and you pray. And you let us know if there's a matter of motive that you've observed that we need to investigate together. Members, pray for and encourage your elders. The elders in the first century needed this encouraging word from Coach Peter. And we need your prayers and your encouragement because it's a super discouraging work. Uh, some time ago, I remember an elder meeting where there were three super complicated, very discouraging things going on. And their things were being multiplied. Through faithfulness of elder leadership, the discouragements were multiplying. But it was actually really encouraging to be in it together. And I think it's because our heads are in the book and in the Bible and we pray and, and because you pray for your elders and thank you for that, please keep it up. And members, avoid assuming the best in all cases of your elders. We are, not, we are not invulnerable to temptation and to failing. And please, please avoid assuming the worst. For Peter says just simply, be subject to your elders. And all of us, let us do all of this with a profound sense of humility for we serve and are called to serve by the Lord Jesus himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are faithful to us and we can trust you even as we suffer according to your will for we entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. When our lives are difficult, it is not proof that we are doing it wrong and help our elders to remember that too. And Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who suffered and who has been glorified. And we thank you for the promise that though we suffer, we will be partakers, are even partakers now in the glory that will be revealed. Father, you are a good shepherd to us and you don't feed on us and eat us and take from us, but you give to us and you have come to us in the person of your son. And so would you strengthen our church to support and to encourage elders to do the same? And would you strengthen our elders to love and patiently lead, and to feed, and to guard, and to be willing to be misunderstood, and to lay their lives down for this flock, as they so faithfully are, to the best of my knowledge. Father, you are a good God, and you are a faithful God, and you faithfully lead us. Would you continue to shepherd us according to your word? In Christ's name, amen.